Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, what a beautiful day it is. Another day that we get to uh, celebrate uh, God's handiwork in our lives, and we praise Him for all that He is and all that He has done for us. It's so good to have all of you as you are coming into the sanctuary. It is good to have you here today. I just want to run through a couple of announcements. Uh, well, you see the uh, pool in front of us. Uh, for those of you that are new to our congregation, uh, this is our baptistry, and it's probably one of the uh, favorite times for us as elders. Uh, the opportunity, one, which we did last time, uh, having the Lord's Supper or the uh, communion service, where we get an opportunity to be able to celebrate with one another and breaking of bread and drinking of the cup to remind us of what Christ has done for us uh, in his broken body, his shed blood. We do that once a month, generally here for communion service, but then we have this privilege of having this pool in front of us, and it was warm water too, that's good, um, and a person stands in there and gives a testimony of their faith and how God has drawn them to faith. The testimonies are powerful, and we symbolize it by bringing a person into the water and then out of the water, symbolizing Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection. It is one of the joys uh, for us as uh, leaders to be able to participate in this, and we have a uh, baptism this morning. Uh, also, one of the joys for us is to be able to teach you, whether it's preaching or teaching, and we've had Sunday school that have been going on for a lot of weeks here. Um, next week, we normally do not do Sunday school the Sunday right after Thanksgiving. A number of people at times are away, so we will not be having adult, we will not be having a Sunday school next Sunday. We'll just go right into our worship service at 1040, 10.30, excuse me, um, on Sunday morning. So no service next Sunday no Sunday school next Sunday after, um, before service. Uh, you also have probably been seeing these cards, uh, hear the bell, I heard the bells. We are going to have that here on Saturday the 9th. We're going to be excited to have uh, the star of the show here uh, as well, and then we're going to get a chance to be able to share that show with each other. Uh, I would encourage you, if you know somebody that doesn't know Christ or maybe somebody from outside this church, bring them. Um, you've got this. We've got a big sanctuary here. Let's load this place up, and let's um, fellowship together on the 9th. Uh, Operation Christmas Child, you should know this, but uh, today I believe is the last day for you to get your boxes in. Uh, so hopefully you've gotten those boxes in and we're piling those up outside. Actually, my school is going down to Baltimore uh, in, in next week uh, to go into their packing station. So we'll be down there, which is going to be pretty cool as well. I think that's all that I have for announcements. Let me pray as we begin. Let me read this passage from Romans. Uh, chapter 11. It says, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him all things are to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, Paul writes this Magnificat of a letter to, Roman, of the Ro to the Romans. And he talks about our guilt 
as humanity. He talks about your solution, the gospel. He talks about the fact that we have this guarantee in Christ. We are in Christ. Nothing will ever separate us from your love. He talks about your sovereignty. When he talks about your nation of Israel, he talks about gospel-centered living, Lord. What an amazing book. But he gets to the end of the gospel section, and he can't help but just burst down in doxology and praise. He's praising you for who you are. He's praising you for what you've done. He praises you for what you will do in his life and through his life. And, and Lord, I praise you uh, because you're such a great God. There's no one like you. I pray that as we come here to sing powerful songs of worship to you, as we hear of a testimony and one going into the waters of baptism, as we hear Pastor Doug preach to us, I pray that we would be praising you over and over and over again. I pray that we would see your might. I pray that we would see your majesty. I pray that your dominion, your kingdom would grow even greater by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. that we couldn't escape but he came and he died and he rose those walls are rubble now remember those giants we caught death and grave they were like mountains that stood in our way but he came and he died and he rose, those giants are dead now. This is our God, this is who he is, he loves us. This is our God, this is what he does, he saves us. Before the cross, beat the grave, let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Remember that fear that took our breath away Faith so weak that we could barely pray But he heard every word, every whisper Now those altars in the wilderness Tell the story of his faithfulness Never once did he fail This is our God, this is what He does, He saves us. Before the cross, meet the grave, let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Who pulled me out of that pit? He did, He did. Who paid for all of our sin? Nobody but Jesus. Who pulled me out of that pit? 
He did, He did. Who paid for all of our sin? Nobody but Jesus. Who rescued me from that grave? Yahweh, Yahweh. Who gets the glory and praise? Nobody but Jesus. Who rescued me from that grave? Yahweh, Yahweh. Who gets the glory and praise? Nobody but Him. This is our God. This is who He is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what He does. He saves us. Before the cross, beneath the grave. Let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Before the cross, beneath the grave, let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Ransom me, and 
seated and uh, just want to uh, want to thank God for the songs that we just sang that talk about what will be witnessed in the waters of baptism this morning. Uh, I think the one thing I want to say this morning is that baptism is a testimony. Baptism is proclaiming uh, the truth that is most central uh, to who we are as believers. It is proclaiming the truth about the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. 
the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, and this is one of my favorite gospel verses, he said, I delivered unto you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. I want you to think about what happens in a baptism by immersion, what we believe is the biblical form of baptism. There is the symbolizing of the death of Christ in the individual, the burial of Christ for the individual, and the raising of Christ to life for the individual. So practicing believer's baptism is what we're doing today. We are be going, uh, going to be baptizing someone, Shay, uh, who has come to personal saving faith in Christ. The thing we want to be clear about is this. What happens in these waters is not miraculous, but it is something that tells you about a miracle that takes place in our lives. The old man is gone, a new has come by faith in Christ. And so there is powerful symbolism in the act of baptism. It symbolizes the old person dying and a new person in Christ emerging. It, it proclaims that on the cross, Jesus Christ bore the full weight and consequence of my sin, an amazing grace that absolutely and forever changes my life. So I'm thankful for the songs we sung this morning. And uh, I want to say this real quick, Shay, before you come, how I know Shay, okay? It was an interesting set of circumstances. So I was invited out to dinner by a new family in our church uh, a few years back, Alan Pat Nichols, okay? We're sitting right up front here. And uh, got done eating the meal, and uh, I see Pat fidgeting around in her purse for something, and I'm like, what is she doing? Well, she pulls out a, a track, uh, basically a gospel track that shares the story of Christ. And uh, if you're going to do this at a restaurant, I encourage you to do what they did as well, and that is make sure you leave a nice tip, okay? <laughs> but she handed the tip and the track to the waitress who is sitting right here. Raise your hand. There she is. And so she is Shay's mom. And uh, so shortly after that, got to know Shay, and this work of God uh, began to take place in his life that has led him to this place where he wants to proclaim his faith in God in the waters of baptism. So for all of us, never underestimate the power of a simple word shared about the glory of Christ. It may be in the form of a track. It may be in the form of your testimony as she is going to share this morning. It may be in various settings, inviting someone to church where they hear the good news of Christ. But never underestimate what God can do through a very simple witness to the work of Christ in someone's life. Okay, and I want to encourage you with that. And Pat, thank you for your example. Okay, I appreciate it. Shay, I'm going to ask you to come and uh, share your story of faith in Christ. Hello, my name's Shay. Um, today I'm very excited to be baptized, and this is my testimony. When I was younger, I would always go to churches. I didn't really know the difference between a Lutheran or a non-denominational church. I just knew that's where God is. And I was, you know, eight years old, and I was going to these churches with my father. Well, I didn't know that my father wasn't necessarily the best man, and he wasn't really God-fearing either. He was more just using it to put up a front. And I pray for him still today. Through realizing this, he is no longer in my life now, and through realizing this, I was lost. I was broken down to somebody who didn't know who they were because I was lied to my whole life. 
I didn't know whether or not to believe in God. I didn't know what to do with myself. But there was one day where I had been sinning for so long, and there was one day where I just crossed the line. I had brought myself to a very dark state. I had done something that crossed the line, and I just remember laying down in bed and saying, God, I'm sorry, and I'm ready to come back. Because I knew that was the only way I was going to be able to be fixed and be saved. And in that moment, I realized that there, there is nothing else in this life that could have such a beautiful mercy, such a beautiful forgiveness, such an everlasting love that I know and I'm confident will never go away. I am so, so grateful for that day. Though how terrible I felt, though how low down I was, it was the moment where I realized that there is nothing else in this life that matters as much as the Lord. I know I'm forgiven for all the times where I've overstepped, all the times where I've sinned. I know I'm forgiven. That love, just knowing that, ringing through my brain every second that God forgives me, has brought me to a point where I am just beyond happy. I, I truly do just thank God. And I thank Pastor Tim here. And I thank Doug and James for bringing me so close. And um, I mean, that's, that's really all I can say. And one Bible verse that I use when I can't remember these things, I can't remember that, you know, maybe I am forgiven, I need some help, is lean not on your understanding, but put all your trust in the Lord, and he will make your path straight. That's Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Thank you. hearing Shay's testimony of faith in Christ, you're going to turn this way, my friend. Oh. <laughs> they, they don't want to just look at me, trust me. <laughs> so Shay, do you today profess that you are trusting the shed blood of Christ alone as the ground of your salvation and forgiveness? I do. Based upon your profession of faith in Christ, we together as a church family want to baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. 
in that promise joy and life had led me to the grave i had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will and if you had not loved me first i would refuse you As I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cause, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place, you bore the wrath reserved for me now all i know is grace hallelujah all i have is christ hallelujah jesus is my strength to follow your commands could never come from me oh father use my ransomed life in any way you choose oh father use my ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you
Dear Heavenly Father, what a, what a morning to rejoice in you, Lord God. We thank you so much for Shay's testimony and uh, just the, uh, the power of your spirit is rising up in us as we as we're able to, uh, to share in his testimony and to rejoice in it, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to gather together with fellow believers and, and to help each other to grow and to be strengthened. Lord, you, uh, you have made us complete in Christ, but you bring us from glory to glory to glory as we worship and study and hear your word, Lord God. Lord, we thank you for providing all these opportunities for us to be the people you need us to be and want us to be, Lord God. Lord, and uh, we thank you for this completeness that you offer to each one of us. Lord, for those that have not seen the need to embrace you, Lord God, and embrace the work that Christ did on the cross. Lord, we just pray this morning that your words would meet their need and touch their heart and uh, bring them to the place where they see the benefit of accepting a free gift of eternity, uh, a gift that was paid for with a profound price, but is offered as a free gift, Lord God. Lord, we pray for a blessing on Doug as he brings your word this morning. May, uh, may you speak directly through him and uh, be a blessing to each one here and a blessing to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before Doug comes up, I just have a real quick announcement. Um, and a actually, after the service, I'll, I'm going to hang out like around the Welcome Center if anybody has more questions about uh, this. But um, several months ago, we had the uh, Afalabi family, uh, Honoré and Kim. They were here and were able to share with us some of, um, of the components of their ministry in Togo. And uh, one of the things that they impressed upon us was the great need to support uh, the the young men that are going into the ministry there. Uh, Kim and Andre have a, a large training center in Togo for, for pastors uh, because most of the pastors in that country have never had any formal training. They become Christians and they're part of a body and they, they just go out and become pastors. So in order to prop, have them properly prepared to do that, they set up this training center. These young men usually make about $50 a month. So to even be able to meet their basic needs is very difficult. So one of the things that their ministry does is they try to solicit funds to purchase land so that they can give a pastor a couple acres of ground to farm to help supplement their income. And then if they stay in the ministry for a number of years, then that land will just be given to them um, so that when they retire, they have something to support themselves with. So, uh, so I spoke with them after uh, their presentation. I said, well, you know, when Christmas comes up, maybe what we could do is say, well, you know, I can't buy two acres of land for somebody, but I can buy a 10 by 10 square plot, 100 square feet. So what I did, if you guys would like to participate in this, I did up a little sheet, and it has some information about their ministry. And then it has a little spot here that said, uh, I'd like to sponsor 1,500 square feet of ground, and it's $20. Or I'd like to sponsor a quarter acre, 
That's $150. A land is very cheap in Togo. <laughs> so you can, here your, your engineering fees will be more than what an acre is. Yeah, in New Jersey, wonderful New Jersey. We love New Jersey, don't we? So an acre is about $600, two acres about $1,200. So what I did, I did up these sheets. If you would like to sponsor a little portion or a large portion, or if you say, I'd like to sponsor 100 acres, you can check that off. Um, and then I also put a little space on the bottom for you write, to write a little Christmas message, if you'd like to, or if you want a big piece of paper and you want to turn that in, that's good too. Uh, but there's instructions what to do with this. So if you'd like to fill that out uh, and support them and sponsor a certain chunk of land, then we'll put it all together. And then at Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve maybe, we'll say, okay, we accumulated 17 acres or whatever it, whatever it works out to be. And we'll let you guys know how successful we were with, the, with this initiative. Um, so like I said, the instructions are all here. They'll be out on that uh, little table where we have all our handouts and cards. And with that, I'll turn it over to Doug. Thank you, Tim. <clears throat> Children can be dismissed for junior church. Oh, you don't have that up there anymore. Okay, so we're good to go. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Genesis chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter down to chapter 6 and verse 8. Um, Tim, we should have thought this through. We should have done the baptism next Sunday because Tim's speaking on the flood. Wouldn't that have been perfect? And then you could have just used this as like an object lesson. Just, uh, we just didn't quite figure, think about that whole thing, but no. Just, what, isn't it a joy to hear the testimony of someone come to faith in Christ? It never gets old, does it? It is just always a joy to hear that. So Shay, we rejoice over what God has done in your life and what God will continue to do in his life uh, until he ends up in the presence of Christ one day. What a, what a blessing. Um, are you into any of your uh, family trees? I don't know if you've, you know, you, you got all these things now. You can go online and track things back. I'm not like particularly into it. My brother is completely into it. And he's tracked this thing back and on the one side back to the 1300s and and, you know, and he, there was some guy who was involved in a fight and Zwingli was involved in it. You know, I thought like, what, you know, all this. So he, he's told me all these stories. And, and some of them are like, that's pretty cool. Like, that's in my line? Like, that, that guy did that and I'm distantly related to him? That's, wow, cool, right? And then he tells me some other stories and it's not so cool. I mean, I always thought like Finkbeiner finch bones, like the, the bone of a finch or something like that. Well, he, he found out it, it's, it's a derivative from found beaner is really what it's from. Some bean farmer, and the way he became a bean farmer is he ran away from his master to another town, and they had a rule in Germany at that time, if you stay in this town for a year and your master finds you, he can't take you back. And it was after a year, and so he won his freedom, and he was a found beaner, farm beaner or something like that, and here I am. <laughs> so, you know, I have all these kind of strange stories, and some of them are sad. I think I've shared with you before, I have a, a great-grandfather who um, actually tried to kill his sons, thinking that 
that's what God wanted him to do and almost killed my grandfather. And of course he would have, somebody else would have been standing up here before you today, right? And, and, and so we have sorted things in our family trees too, don't we? So it's interesting when you come to the scriptures that we find something very similar. You know, you find some high marks and some very, very low marks. And so um, today, we want to talk our way through um, Genesis chapter 5. And, 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 and here's what I want you to think about. It starts out by saying this, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. And, and what happens in this passage is we're, we're going we're gonna to be running from Adam all the way down to Noah through Seth, okay? Um, we talked about Cain. John Soden talked last week to you from Genesis 4 about Cain. This one's going to be actually running through Seth. So we're going to kind of run through that line. And, 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 and again, you're thinking like, what can we possibly find in a genealogy? You'll, you, you'll be amazed. Some really interesting things there. So we're going to kind of sweep down through there. And then what happens in chapter 6 is you kind of pull back and you get this panoramic view of, okay, I see the line Adam down to Noah, but like what's going on in the world largely between these Sethites and the, the descendants of Cain and, 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 and all those individuals? Like what, what, what's happening there? And you get this snapshot, which then will set us up for the flood. So we're really looking at this period through a genealogy and then kind of a, then pulling back and looking at some other dynamics that, 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 that are really quite sad. Um, but woven through it is God's grace and hope. Isn't that the way it, often, it always works? There's always hope because of the gospel. Um, so let, let's, let's talk our way through this. Uh, this so let me, um, let me pop over here. Yeah, okay. Um, in chapter 5, then, verses 1 to 32, here, here would be kind of my overview of what's going on in this section, all right? And then, then I want to unpack it for you in some more detail, okay? So let me, let me just read this. You got it there on the slide. While death is a reality for all image bearers who experience God's blessing of life, in other words, they live, they're alive, there is a desire in God's people to be free from the curse of sin, and there is a promise for God's faithful people of ultimate victory over death. Um, in the last chapter, you remember John had said this last week, coming out of Genesis chapter three, where there's this promise of the seed of the woman that God was gonna do something. Remember in chapter four and verse one, and Eve, when she has Cain, she's thinking, this is the one. Maybe this is the one that will turn things back. Well, how did that go? Not well at all. Because that one, Cain, killed Abel, his brother. And the Bible then runs down through Cain's line, and then you have these really interesting verses. Look at the end of chapter four. The text says this. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel, since Cain killed him. 
Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so chapter 4 ends with a glimmer of hope, doesn't it? All the stuff that goes on with Cain and the death of Abel and building his own world as if there is no God. And Eve has Seth and she thinks, maybe now. And Seth calls on God and trusts in God. And chapter five opens up by tracking his life and his descendants. Not really his life, his life rather quickly. Just tracking through that line. What happens? And, and what you're going to find when you come to the end of chapter five, Lamech again is going to have a son by the name of Noah. And you know what he's going to say? Um, maybe this will be the one that will turn back the curse. Like from the get-go, they want the curse turned back. Don't you? Somebody here say, I, I love death. I love sorrow. I love suck. We don't, do we? There's something in our hearts that's always crying out. And you, you see that woven right through these first couple chapters of Genesis. What I want, want, want you to notice as we talk our way through, um, I, I want to look at some common realities for humanity and then some unexpected special statements that the text makes. First of all, common realities. You and I are a chip off the old block. Do you know that? Listen to what the text says here. Chapter 5, verse 1. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness. Can you imagine having a, you're having a child when you're 130? Uh, and I know they were, they were more fit and all that, but still, man, that's enough to give you shivers reading that one. But anyway, well, anyway, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness and in his own image, and he named him Seth. So here's the point. You and I are created, are born in the image of God and in the image of Adam, right? Which means because we're created in the image of God, there is this possibility by God's grace that we can both relate to him and represent him to the world. That, that's... That's incredibly special. Now, how well does humanity do with that? Not so well. But it is the way we were created, and by God's grace, it can become a reality. But we're also born in the image of Adam. And what well, well, Adam lived, we live. Yeah, that's true. Um, Adam, Adam had kids, and if you get married, you have the possibility of having kids. Yeah, that, 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 that's true, too. And family, yeah, 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 yeah. What else does he pass on to us? Sin. The curse. And death. 
And when you read through this passage, I won't read through each one of the genealogies. You'll get the, you'll get the hang of it, though, pretty quick. So I've listed up here what you find. Listen, let me just pick up here in verse, um, verse 4. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. That is amazing. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. Are you hearing a pattern? And so you have these 10 generations that are listed, and one right after another after another, this person lived, he gave birth, he lived this other period of time, had other kids, and then he died. And at one level, apart from Jesus Christ coming back, your life won't be much different than that. You will live, and because of Adam, you will die. You go like, whoa. Whoa, you're saying that that's, that's the way it is. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, but, but I'm in the image of God. Yeah, it's more. But yes, yes, yes. There's, there's possibility because you're in the image of God, created in the image of God. However, the reality is I'm a chip off the old block. And I will follow in the stead, which is why Romans 5, 12 tells us, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and what? And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men because all have sinned. Do you see? Well, Finkbeiner, if that's all it said, it's a bit of a bummer. Yeah, it would be. But there's these inserted statements that step out of the genealogy that bring us great hope. And so... Um, I, I, for what it's worth, I probably should have showed this earlier. You probably, you probably can't even read that. All you see is boxes up there, okay? Right? Do you see boxes? Don't try to read them. You'll destroy your eyes. I'll just tell you. On the left side, you basically have the line of Cain. If you're down front here, you guys can see it, right? And on the right side, you have the, the line of Adam through Seth, okay? And the only thing is there's two yellows marked there because what's fascinating is two of the people that, 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 that Seth's line stops and camps out on, two individuals, Enoch and Lamech. Both of those individuals, they're different, but that name is also used in the line of Cain from chapter four. There is an Enoch and a Lamech in chapter four. And so in writing this, and he steps aside, he gives us hope over, over what God can do through people that submit to him. He also contrasts them with somebody with the same name in Cain's line. Does that make sense? So the first one is Enoch. And look down, if you would, at verse 21. So you've got this pattern. You're reading through it. This person happened. He lived this long. He had this child. And then he died. Okay. Here's what's really interesting. Verse 21. 
When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, now what I'm expecting now is that it will say he lived a certain amount of time. That's what I'm waiting for, right? And that, because like you're in this cadence, and this happened, and then this happened, and then after this, this happened, but now all of a sudden it changes. And it says, after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, doesn't mean nobody else did before him, but he's highlighting the fact that this guy was really committed to God. And, and, and I don't know how much of that tied into having a son and maybe making him thinking seriously about it. I, I don't know. Was that part of it? Maybe, who knows? I, it's hard to say. But what I do know is we now step out of the pattern that we see all the way through chapter five. And now it tells me this man is walking with God. And you're going, okay, well, that, that's really cool. But I know he's going to die and then we'll move on to the next person, right? Not exactly. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. And I'm waiting for it to say, and Enoch died. Aren't you? Because when we get all the way through, the same thing. Enoch walked faithfully with God, verse 24 says. Then he was no more because, because God took him. What? Wait a second. Doesn't everybody die in Adam? They're born and they will die unless God does something supernatural. And doesn't it strike you as strange that long before, I mean, thousands of years before Christ comes and we hear about his death and the resurrection and, and uh, the, the hope of resurrection for us and these strong terms have become stronger through the Old Testament and glaringly obvious in the New Testament, you already have God throwing something in there and saying, I can reverse death. Death is for everyone, unless I do something in their lives. Wow. The only other person where this happens in the Old Testament is Elijah. But you have these two, this story here, and it pulls us back because we're kind of reading it, kind of bummed out. Oh, man, like, all right, I'm in the image of Adam, and blah, 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 and oh, man, and, 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 but, but it's possible by God's grace to actually walk with him. Yeah, and not just walk with him, but to spend all eternity with him too and not even have death come into your experience in this case. Wow, isn't that amazing? I love that insertion because we're walking along and I'm like, oh man. God says, there's hope. The second stepping out of the, the, the sequence just a little bit, and this, these asides, if you, if you see down here, it comes in verse 28. It says this, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah, and, and now 
you actually find out why he named him Noah. Now, in the Hebrew, the word Noah, it, it, we're not sure. There's some debate over its root meaning. Exactly. But, but apparently, at least part of it ties into another Hebrew word, which means relief or comfort or something like that. The word can also mean regret. So the word can do a lot of interesting things. But, but here it's obviously relief. And look at what he says. He will, he names him Noah. And, and Namek says, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. And that's all he says. And then the text goes from there and just says, uh, after Noah was born, Lamech lived this amount of years, had sons, daughters. He lived this many years, and he died. So we're back to the same pattern again. And then ends with Noah. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So he, he, he's kind of pulling us back. We're running the same kind of pattern. But he steps out, and when Lamech has a boy, he says, he says maybe, maybe this will be the one that will turn back the curse. Well, did Noah turn back the curse? Well, kind of depends what you mean by that, I suppose. The flood is called a curse when it actually comes. And in the sense that there would be hope because somebody would be preserved through that curse, yeah, Noah does, in that sense, bring us some kind of relief. It doesn't feel like relief exactly, but sort of. But then, how well does Noah do after all that? He, he's going to be called a man of, of the ground in chapter 9. And he, he ends up starting a vineyard and getting drunk, and all the problems that come out of that. And so... Do we have a turning around of the curse with Noah? Not ultimately. We're still waiting for the ultimate seed at this time in history. But they're thinking about it. God, by your grace, I want to walk with you. And God says, I'm going to do something special as a reminder of what I'm going to do in the future. Boom. God, Will you turn back the curse? Will you use my son Noah to do it? Yes, sort of, and, and no, ultimately. That will wait for another, Jesus Christ. Do you see? And so, so Genesis is, is a book that is filled with realism. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the sin. We're going to find that out very shortly. But in the midst of all that, there is hope. And these insertions tell us there will be a turning back of the curse. There can be victory over death. Oh God, please do your work. Do you see? So that's kind of the straight line from Adam running all the way down to Noah. Now what Moses does is he pulls back and he says, I want you to know what's going on in the world in that time of well over a thousand years. Like what's, like, what's, like, what's happening? So he's going to give us that in chapter six. Notice what he says. Um, is that the one I want? Yeah, that's the one I want. 
chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Again, let me just read it, and then I want to just go back and kind of unpack it. And this is, I have to tell you, we were, I mentioned this briefly in Sunday school today when Bill was teaching. Um, this is one hard passage that scholars are all over the page on. I mean, they're all over, I mean, so, so I'm going to give you my take on it, but, um, um, you know, I believe I'm right, but I could be wrong. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you what, what I believe and why I believe it, but it, it's, it's not an easy passage for a variety of reasons. But it's a sh- it, what we get is this overview of what's going on in humanity. The Bible says this. Let me just read the first couple of verses, um, and I'll, I'll just leave that up for you because we'll come back to it. Bible says in verse chapter 6, verse 1, when human beings began to increase in number on earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Now to make things even more complicated, look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God went to, into the daughters of humans and had children by them. Like, does that raise any questions to you when you read it? A couple. My big question is, who are we talking about? Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? Who are the Nephilim, for goodness sakes? See the problem. And I, I, don't, I don't want to go off on this too long, so I'm going to try to do it in about three minutes, okay? And, and, and if you don't catch it all, you'll be okay. I just want you to know. Um, there, there, there are scholars, uh, good scholars, uh, that will argue that the sons of God are fallen angels, okay? It's a very common view. Matter of fact, if you read the literature, what we call the intertestamental Jewish literature between the Old and New Testament, running right into the New Testament and going up into rabbinic sources, uh, the most common view is that the sons of God refer to fallen angels who somehow then cohabitate with women, um, maybe through some person in such a way that the offspring is uh, amazing in their feet. Sons of God with the daughters of men, and they'll normally say, if you take that position, you'll normally say that, that the Nephilim, the great ones of renown, were the offspring of that relationship. And, you know, when you read, I, have you, you've heard like the epics of Gilgamesh, right? Have you heard, does that sound any familiar to you at all when you think back? Well, you, you, have, you have all kinds of um, ancient Near Eastern views and so forth. And so you have this character named Gilgamesh that's about 18 feet tall, we're told, in, in one, of the, one of the writings. And he's mighty and he wants to live forever. And it's this whole story about why it doesn't go so well for him. But, 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 but nonetheless, he's very powerful and strong and all, all, all that kind of stuff. So you have, the, you have the Nephilim, and you have, you have a whole history in the ancient Near East of these kind of mighty people. And so the thought is, angels with women create these Nephilim. However that happens exactly, and I'm not going to get into the details, okay? I'm just, I'm just saying. 
And there's some very, very good scholars that argue that. And one of the reasons they argue it, not only because of what the Jewish literature says, but you do have something else that's kind of interesting when you read 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, and Jude. You have this reference to, to certain fallen angels who are in chains in a special way until the judgment day, while others aren't, and it's because that they violate their boundaries somehow. So whatever that's talking about, and it's normally connected to the fall, to, um, to the flood. So it seems like first Peter, Peter and Jude recognize some angelic stuff going on somehow in conjunction with this, something like that. Does that sort of make sense? Okay. Then you have another view, and this view argues that the sons of God are humans. Either Sethites, people from the line of Adam through Seth down to Noah, um, or perhaps a unique group within that group of almost like kingly figures. Okay. Um, but they're human. And these Nephilim are really strong guys that are out there too, or, or something like that. One guy who's a very good scholar argues for a combination. He says the sons of God are angels, but the Nephilim have nothing to do with them. They're just these really marauding, powerful guys that are around or something like that. So what do you do with all that? Here's where I struggle. I can't see the angelic view when I just read Genesis 4, 5, and 6. It just, it doesn't fit with the context. There, there's, when you have Satan, who's in a serpent, both get cursed. But if angels create all this problem in chapter 6, then like, why do we get the flood and all that stuff? You, Nothing about what happens to the angels are mentioned here in chapter 6. Nothing in Genesis. To believe me, I spent probably far too many hours researching this and wrestling with this one. And here's my... But, but, what do you do with First Peter and Jude? And some of the Jewish tradition. So here's my take. Uh, this I'd want to argue strongly. When, when you read through it, it's not always... That's clear in the English translations. But, but there's, 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 there's this sense in the Hebrew where they'll say, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's just kind of moving the story along. It's very common in a narrative. And sometimes, though, the grammar will indicate that you've stepped out of the story for just a moment to give some explanation. Verse 4 in, in, in Genesis chapter um, 6 is a step out from the story. So you could almost take verse four and just take, get, get out of the way for a second. And you could just read this story. God says in verse three, my spirit will not contend or will not remain with humans forever. They're mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Skip verse four, go right down to verse five. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of human race was and just kind of keep moving. Do you see? So why is verse four even in there? It's an aside. And I think it's a significant aside. Here's what I would argue. I think the sons of God are Sethites, human beings. 
who compromise because they're more interested in what they want rather than what God wants. And I think the purpose of the Nephilim, and again, people are going to disagree with me on this one. This is my take. Because I want to do some, I, I want to find angels somewhere somehow in this stuff. I don't think you find it with the sons of God. I think that is talking about humans. But in verse 4, when he says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterwards, I think when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, I think what he's saying is, you know, in this period of time when you've got all this compromise and going on and where you lose the purity of devotion to God because of these intermarriages and all that kind of stuff, um, in the midst of all that, to make things even worse, the Nephilim were around. Who were they? I think that's an indirect reference to the offspring of some kind of angelic, falling angelic activity, probably through demonized men or something like that. I don't know, because it doesn't tell me anything beyond that. But I think he's tipping his hat saying, things were bad in and of themselves because of what people do. What complicates it is that you have this whole thing with the Nephilim and probably fallen angel activity. But that's just an aside. It's not where he wants to focus. You know what it tells me? Flip Wilson. Anybody remember Flip Wilson? Remember what he used to always say? The devil made me do it. Flip, I got news for you. You made you do it. <laughs> right? Yeah, this is the core problem. Yeah, there's a demonic world. Yeah, stuff goes on. Yeah, there's a violation of these boundaries. But this is where I'm going to focus. That allows me to see both kind of going on, but the one is direct and the other one is indirect. Okay? I think that's what's going on. Make it to heaven and find out it was completely wrong. And, and that'll be okay. But, but it seems to me to make the most sense of what's going on here. Okay? All right. That's, that's done. Now, with, with that interpretation, let's read the passage, all right, whether you agree with it or not. So, so as he works through here, the problem comes in verses 1 and 2. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, which, which happened right away, so this is taking place over an extended period of time. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of, any of them that they chose. Now, does that say it's, really, it's wrong to marry a beautiful woman? Is that what the text is saying? Of course not. What's wrong is to base my decision solely on what is an outside, series of outside characteristics. I mean, like, I think my wife is knockout beautiful. But her beauty inside makes her beauty outside that much better. And I think what you have happening here, and, and there's an interesting play that, I don't know if you noticed this, but listen to what it says. It says that the sons of God saw, um, and then, it, then it's not clear here, I get the NIV, it, it's better actually in the American on this one. They saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they took. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew, literally. Do you remember any other time prior to this when you have somebody seeing and taking? 
Eve in Genesis 3. Where Eve put on glasses that said, man, eating that tree is really going to benefit me a lot. And she takes. And I think what you find here is these guys are just a chip off the old block. Rather than living by faith in God and seeking to honor him, all of a sudden life becomes what Finkbeiner can get and what I want and what I like. And what I do is I see <laughs> and I take. And I'm just like Eve. No different. So and, and it's like, well, so if you intermarry somebody who's not a believer, that's like the worst sin in the world. No, this is indicative of a heart that's compromised. And that can happen in a, in a myriad of ways. And, and the beauty of the gospel is if you're in a marriage where your mate is not a believer, is there any hope? There's hope all over the place. Read 1 Peter 3 and 1 Corinthians 7. For sure. The gospel gives us hope even in those challenging times. The difference is, if you're in that situation, you're trying to live for God there. In this situation, people are saying, I'm willing to walk away from Yahweh so I can have her. So I'm putting something else before the true and living God. And we do that in a million ways. And this line, which was supposed to be one committed to God, now is all of a sudden getting mixed up. And this was a huge problem with Israel. Run, run through Genesis, run through the Old Testament, happens all over the place. They see some beautiful Moabitess women, Numbers 25, and they go like, forget Yahweh. Man, I'm, I'm doing the Moabite thing. That's what happens. But what happens when those who say we're connected to God, we care about God, we want to preserve God's ways, when they start living as if there is no God, or, or as if there's something more important than God, better. I just want to back burner God and put this thing central. It can be a myriad of ways, and that's what happens. And God says it just all starts getting mixed place values, hearts that are going away from God, more concerned about themselves, seeing and taking, and that, that's where you are. That's the situation. What's God's response in verse three? Then the Lord God said, my spirit will not contend or will not remain, would be another possibility here. I think it's probably better. My spirit will not remain with humans forever because they're mortal. Their days will be 120. And again, some people say, well, that means everybody's going to live just to be 120 and no more, no longer after that. The problem with that is people live longer than that after this. I think it's a time frame in which Noah is building an ark. You know what amazes me? God looks around and he sees the world going their own way, doing their own thing, just moving ahead as if there is no God or as, or as if there's things more important than God, namely me. And so the, the world is moving along this way and God says, they're mortal. They're, they're gonna die anyway. Who do they think they are? My spirit will not constantly remain with them and working with them. There comes an end if they don't respond. 
However, I'm going to be patient for 120 years. Wow. But God, they're just snubbing you. They are. They ought to be destroyed. They should. But you're going to be patient for that long with this bunch of people? I am. That's amazing, folks. That's, our, that's the grace of our God. Because it wasn't like, well, the, these people are just like ha- having a couple struggles. <laughs> this stuff is pervasive. And to complicate things, verse 4, you've got these whole Nephilim in the background that are creating tensions too, for sure. But let's get back now and just talk about humans. With all those pressures, they have made the kinds of choices they should never have made. Look what happens in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Folks, that's pretty comprehensive. Like everybody, all the time, everything they're thinking, man, you're like, that's, that's bad. Will the flood ultimately resolve that issue? No. No. Because you'll read in chapter 8, after the flood, God, God says, I'm not going to do this again, but the, the, everybody's heart is still evil. It's just that I'm going to be gracious. So, this, this, this sin is pervasive. And here's something else. Does God look at all that and say, you know, think about the way humans are sometimes. Think of the way we express emotions. You know, driving down the road, I get a flat tire, first thing out of my mouth is praise the Lord. <laughs> I, I mean, come on, come on. Yeah, maybe by the time you cut, settle down and call somebody, but come on. No, man, I just kind of react, don't I? Don't you? Not my emotion. Whatever goes on. So does... God sees all this, and yes, as a God who is holy, he could in one moment wipe the whole thing out right at that time because people are just living as if he is nothing. But instead, he's patient. And instead, when he sees it, listen how the Bible describes God's response. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created. With them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. Here it is again. For I regret that I have made them. Is God cold and calloused with this whole thing? Do you remember back in Genesis 1, the Bible says, and when God saw his creation, and he responds and he's excited and this is good, all that. But now, when God looks out and he sees all the evil, he regrets in the sense that he is pained by humanity And it describes it in this kind of human term. In his heart, he's deeply troubled. Now, God doesn't have a heart like we do, right? It's it's obviously a picture. 
And God, when he expresses his emotion, it's not just a reaction. It's always completely consistent with his character in every way. But God's stance toward humanity is pain. When when God looks at our world, folks, today and sees wars and people killing people here and, and governments that are completely politically corrupt and people who are killing people on the streets and cities and people that are doing this and manipulating people here and do... Is he angry? Yes, that is, that is appropriate. And the scripture will use the word anger for sure. It's completely appropriate. It's consistent. It's not a reaction. It's, it's, it's a response out of his character that's always measured and balanced. But he's also pained. Because they bear his image. And he loves them. But he is the just holy God. And righteousness will stand. You, you can't have one without the other. I just want God to be loving and merciful. Then he's just a, a gooey grandpa or something. You know, warm fuzzy or something. No, I just want him to be holy and, and righteous and, 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 and showing forth. Then you cower for your entire life. You cower. No, no, he's both. This is not Finkbeiner's world, it's God's world. I don't get to call the rule, make the rules. He makes the rules. It's his world. He can do whatever he wants. I get to be his child by trusting Christ. I, like, I can actually be in a relationship with him. And this God is pained by what he sees in the world around him. Do you remember when Jesus was that uh, before, before he raised Lazarus, the Bible tells us he, he wept. I sometimes have read that and thought like, why would you weep? You know what you're going to be doing in like five minutes. <laughs> like, come on. And, and one of the other terms that's used in John 11 is anger. Christ is angered. He, he is both compassionate and, 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 and with people and also angry. How, how's that being? You know why? He's angered that he's in a world where death and the curse of sin are pervasive because it was never the way it was meant to be. And he's compassionate and he weeps, not because he doesn't know what he's going to do, because he's pained by the pain that he sees in a world that's walked away from him. It's the same thing. God is angry and pained in his heart at the exact same time. I don't know how to pull that off, do you? Like I'm, 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 I'm imbalanced one way or the other, depending upon the situation. <laughs> and God is perfectly balanced at all times. And you read this and you go like, well, then it's all over. He's just going to wipe the whole thing out. And then the writer, just so you don't miss it, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that great? So we're done. No. We're never done. There's always hope. 
And there's one guy with his family that's going to be faithful when they go into that ark. That's amazing. So I might say this, kind of by way of closing. I could say it, and, I'll, let me, and again, I might just read it. I'm watching my time. I need to wrap it up quick here. Although the world is broken and corrupt, we should walk faithfully before our sovereign God, who alone can reverse the curse and who alone will judge the rebels. That, that is our hope, isn't it? Um, I was um, thinking about all the parallels in the book of Romans when I was reading this passage. Like they are everywhere in Romans chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 8. Because here we read about sin and Adam and the curse and just all the stuff. And, and I, you know, folks, if Christ tarries, you know what I know? Everyone in here is going to die. Do you know that? That's clear. You cannot get away from it. It's marked on all of us unless Christ comes back. But if you're a Christian and you do die, that's merely called sleep because you enter into the presence of God forever. You see, you see, you see how the gospel, Jesus Christ overturns everything because he has come, he has lived, he has died, he has resurrected and he's coming back for us one day. And that changes the whole narrative. Listen to a couple verses in Romans 5, and then I'll close. I was going to read, yeah, I'll, I'll just read a couple here. S such good stuff. And so when it comes to death, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will declare in light of the resurrection, death, where is your sting? It's gone. Where's your victory, death? It's completely gone because Christ is resurrected. There is hope for all of us. Enoch, I might not, I may not transition like you, but I will be with you one day in heaven. Do you see? Romans chapter five, I love this. I'll just read a couple verses. It's so good, it's so good. You want to go back and read the whole chapter. It's really good. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And he goes on to strive some things. Let me jump down to verse 15. The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, if I throw a rotten apple into a barrel of apples, what happens to the barrel? They're all rotten. That's kind of what Adam did to us, right? How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Jesus, somehow, you take a good apple with Jesus, you throw into a barrel with rotten apples, guess what happens? They become good apples. Well, it doesn't work that way. It does with Jesus, that's all I can tell you, okay? Don't try it at home, okay? But it does work. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. One guy sins, and we all go into transgression and sin. Jesus comes into a world filled with transgression and sin. And one act of obedience on the cross 
and we can all be forgiven. Isn't that good? Wow. You can be forgiven. You You don't have to be in Adam. You can be in Christ, the second Adam. And you come to Romans 8, and he says, look, There is nothing, if you know Jesus Christ, that's going to separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer? No one. It doesn't mean there's not a lot of people against us. That's not the point. The point is they can't successfully be against us. How do you think Noah felt for 120 years? Or 100 years, however long he's built. I mean, it's just, I mean, no way. And this text says, look, 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 look. You'll be okay. He describes in Romans 8, the whole creation groans. And it it will face full redemption, the creation itself, only after we are redeemed by Christ. So it waits for the redemption of humanity. Christ comes and transforms us and then will transform the whole world around us. Eve, it's not in Cain. Eve, it's not in Seth. Eve, it's not, uh, not Eve, sorry. Lamech, it's not in Noah. It's in Christ. He's coming. And he will turn everything back. And therefore, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Neither life, nor death, nor anything in between that you can possibly ever think about. Nothing will do that. Christ is always the answer. And so my brother and sister, if you know Christ, walk with him. Because at the end of the day, nothing else matters. It really doesn't. Everything else is just stuff. Let Christ be the one you follow in the stuff of life. And that will make all the difference. Yeah, but Finkbeiner, the world is corrupt. Yeah, you think it's as bad as it was for Noah? I think it was worse for him. What can you do by the power of the Spirit within you because of what Christ has done? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of so many things. Lord, help us not to play silly games as if This life is the end, because it's not the end. It's not. It's quite clear because of Adam that we're all sinners that are going to die. And yet, Lord, the seed, Jesus Christ, has come. And in him, Satan is defeated. And we can know the joy and the wonder of living eternal life with you, both now and forevermore. Father, overwhelm us with the wonders of the gospel and what our blessed Lord has done. And may we again commit our lives to you afresh this week to live as if the only thing that matters is you because the only thing that does matter is you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, Child of weakness, watch and pray, Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone. And change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow.
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are just so thankful that you had a plan. Lord, as we sang this morning, Father, you are God. You have shown us amazing grace, which we didn't deserve. Now all we have is Christ, who has paid it all for each one of us. We are just so appreciative that you gave your life on the cross. And Lord, we give ourselves back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.